Next slide, please. Here is a view as you're starting to go up. When Wayne and Jordan and I were getting ready to go on top of Masada, we decided we were not going to walk up that. It was hot. Uh, our, our guide was really, really smart. He wanted us to go in the early part of the day while it was cool. Cool was, you know, like 100 degrees. And so we decided to take the cable car. As you can see, there are the, the, uh, the, the, the cables for the cable car going up to Masada. Next slide, please. Un, dois, tres. There we go. This is looking from on top where the, the cable car drops you off. This is looking down. As you can see, there is a, a kind of a snake path. In fact, that's what it's called. That is the snake path that leads all the way down to, uh, to, to the wadi down there, which was kind of a, an escape route. If you were an army and you tried to march your army up that snake path, all the people on top of Masada would have to do is just throw down some stones, roll some boulders down that cliff, and you are completely wiped out. Next slide, please. I don't know if you can see it, but up at the very top of that picture is the Dead Sea. You are just a short distance from the Dead Sea. Uh, here's another picture of the, uh, of the snake path as it goes down. Next slide, please. You think it's working? Let's see if it works. It won't work. Okay. Hey, can you just toggle all the words down all the way to Herod's Palace? It was built by Herod, Herod the Great, 37 B.C. to 31 B.C. It was going to be his, his, his ultimate escape place in case things got dicey for him. 1,300 feet high. The plateau on top is about 2,000, it's a little under 2,000 square feet by 900 square feet. So it's really a, just, just this gigantic, uh, most of the people describe it as kind of a rhomboid-shaped uh, plateau. Uh, over 4,000 feet of wall. What was interesting about this is that you've got this, this, this mountain, this, this plateau that goes straight up out of the ground. They built a 13-foot wall all around the circumference of, of this, this plateau. It was 13 feet high. There's about there's well over you know, 4,000 feet of wall up there. It was a casement wall, which meant that there was actually two walls with a space in between. Later in history, when the Zealots took over Masada, they built their apartments for people to live inside of that casement area. There was an incredible water supply system. Uh, water, as you, can, as you can tell from those pictures, out there in the desert, out there in that desolate wilderness, is just, I mean, it's more important than oil. It's more important than gold. You've got to have water. They had cisterns that, they, that, they, that were hewn into the rock and into the mountain that could hold 1.5 million gallons of water. And because they were covered cisterns, you could just keep them for years and years and years and years. And one of the things that was sort of ingenious in the way that Harry 
Herod did this is that when the rain did come in the rainy season, they built channels into the earth that would, as the water is running off of the hills, they would, they would come to the foot of Masada where they would collect and then there would be a, 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 a mules and there would be slaves that would carry the water by foot up another path and dump it into these cisterns that were up at the top. Lots and lots of structures, but the, the real beauty of Masada is found in Herod's palace. Next slide, please. <coughs> Here are some of the outstructures. Um, as you can see, uh, the, some of the outbuildings, as you can see, you, you know, these things were built out of, out of limestone. Uh, it is very desolate. Uh, and believe it or not, and we'll see some pictures of this, this was a very fertile, on top of this mountain or on top of this, this, this plateau where the fortress was, it was very, very fertile. Next slide, please. This is one of the towers that is next to the wall. Uh, again, these walls right here, they were casement walls. They were two layers of wall. If you knock down... Casement walls were just really, really smart. If you knocked down one wall as you were attacking, you had to get through another wall to actually get inside of the fortress. So you had these 13-foot casement walls, and then you had these, these large towers that would you know, go way up into the air, and you could see for miles and miles and miles and miles. Next slide. This area right here that we're looking at, we're kind of in the northern part of the plateau and we're looking to the south. And all of this area right in here, now these are those outbuildings we were just looking at, all of this area right here going to the very end, Herod dumped all kinds of fertile soil into that and he grew hay for the animals, he had fruit trees, he grew crops up there. It was very much a self-sustaining fortress. It was one of those places where if I've got to be here because... You know, the empire that is in charge of the entire world is after me. I want to be safe and I want to be able to eat and I want to be able to do it for a number of years. Next slide. Here you can, you can sort of see that, uh, you know, it, it, it's fairly flat. A lot of those, those buildings there uh, come after the time that the zealots were up at Masada. But this is, this is basically that area that was just, was just a gigantic garden spot. Next slide. This is, this is not Masada, uh, the real Masada. This is actually a sculpture of it. And, and what we're going to be looking at here is, this is the northern end right here. Here are those tracks, or these channels that were made that would collect the water as they would, they would come off of the hills. They would flow down into these cisterns at the bottom. And then they would be taken by a mule up the side of this mountain and dumped into cisterns, 1.5 million gallons worth of cisterns up here at the top. Here you have what is known as the Northern Palace. This is where Herod would have lived. Uh, he had a three-tiered palace. Uh, we're going to take some pictures from right here down upon this thing right here. We'll see that in just a minute. Here are some storerooms. Here are some baths up here. Uh, uh, over here, we're going to see a wall that, or a, a mound of dirt that's going to come up, and this is where the Romans breached it in 73 AD. Next slide. Here is one of those cisterns where the water was stored. Uh, water could be kept for a very, very, very long time because it was covered and it would stay fresh and, and uh, it would stay clean, it would stay potable, it would be drinkable. These things were essential to salvation and our survival up on, on Masada. Next slide, please. 
Here again is, a, is a, another view of, of how that northern palace looked. Uh, basically, Herod cannot be gotten to at Masada. But just in case somebody in Masada Fortress itself decided they wanted to get him, they were actually going to have to come down. This was so well guarded, all of these staircases, this was so well guarded that basically you had to be sort of half man, half billy goat and be able to kind of climb down these mountains here to be able to get into that, that palace area to be able to get to Herod. We'll be seeing that in just a second. Next slide, please. These are those storerooms. The storerooms were, were basically as, as long as the stage to the back wall here. Very, very wide, you know, 10 to 15 feet wide. And these, these storerooms could just, the, the amount of storerooms that they had could just store food for a decade. They had, in fact, when the Romans took Masada from the Zealots, they found that there were 10 years worth of foodstuffs still in Masada. Next slide, please. This is looking down upon Herod's northern palace. We're standing on that top tier. We're looking down. As you can see, this is that round palace room. You go down even further, and what you have is that, that bottom layer where his sleeping quarters would have been, would be, and so on and so forth. You'll also see up here at the top, just because it's a good picture of it, even though it's not our part, we haven't gotten to this part of the story yet. You, you see, there is a, this is a Roman wall. Right here, and it goes right here. And this is one of the Roman camps of Flavius Silva, the Roman, the Roman governor at the time. Next slide, please. Another picture of it, a little bit clearer. Next slide, please. And here's a picture taken from the western side of Masada, up on top, back towards the north, to take a picture of, of, of the palace. This is where we were when we took that picture down upon the round structure and then where his sleeping quarters were right here. Uh, there are these little footpaths right here, but as you can see, you basically, you know, in, in antiquity, they didn't have these really nice guardrails on the outside of those things. I mean, you really did have to be a, a billy goat with glue on your feet to be able to walk in this, this particular area or to get to, to some of these, these places on the side of that mountain. Uh, back in 2000, when I was a much younger man, about 40 at the time, I did not, they didn't encourage us to go up because we, it would take about 45 minutes to get up, but they did encourage us to go down. So in the year 2000, when I was 40, uh, actually there was a group of us in the tour then that went down, and uh, it, it's much easier going down, believe me, than going up. Next slide, please. This is the view that Herod would have had to the north towards Jerusalem uh, from Masada. I, I have no clue, that, that's got to be 100 miles at least, but you can see a long, long, long distance, and you, you know, you can see any army, this is the Dead Sea, you can see any army coming around the bend towards you. Next slide. This is uh, inside the baths. Uh, this is a, a very, very beautiful and expensive fresco. Fresco was uh, a type of treatment to a wall. There was plaster. The, the paint and the color would actually go into it. Um, this, is, this is one of the baths that was found inside of uh, Masada. Next slide, please. Uh, this is one of, the, one of the coolest things that you'll ever see anywhere in the world that deals with the ancient world. This was uh, an, uh, uh, sort of an ancient bath. And it was a hot bath. And, and basically, if we can go to the next slide, Brian, please. You can see up here at the top, 
was a was a furnace area, and this uh, this was a rock floor with these pillars, just just tons of these pillars, all the same height, and there was a a a a, a floor that was placed on top of all of those pillars. You. When you walked in, you wouldn't be able to see anything but tile. But underneath, there was a space of about you know three feet or so that uh, that would be heated by that furnace. They would you would walk in with wooden clogs. They would dump water in there. The heat from, that was going underneath the floor and between these tiles would actually heat that bath. And you had a hot bath on a cool cool night in the desert. And it was a place. This was not Herod's. Uh, Bathhouse. It was the people that were closest to him and the high-ranking officials in his in uh, in his army. This would have been the place where they would have enjoyed the baths and these kinds of things. But when you think about the ancient world and you think about you know cavemen, you know trying to start a fire, you know there comes a point in the world where things do get a little bit comfortable, even though they're two thousand years removed from us. They don't have electricity. They don't have those kinds of things. But they did have some luxuries, and it was sort of ingenious the way that they did this. Next slide, please. Can you go down to the next four? Now, that, that's basically Masada. Gigantic plateau, big wall around it, towers. There, there you can see for, for miles and miles and miles. It is a desolate, 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 desolate area. It's, it's a place that you really want to go and fight if you're going to go to Masada and fight. Can we go back to that previous slide with the, the spiral of violence? The spiral of violence is uh, some information uh, that a historian by the name of, of Bruce Horsley has, uh, has put together, uh, and it's one that I subscribe to. <coughs> what Horsley says is that basically uh, there's a spiral of violence that happens not just in the ancient world, but even in the world as we know it today. You have a group of people where there is institutionalized injustice the way they perceive injustice. It may be taxation, it may be voting rights, it, you know, it could be any number of things, but it is a perceived injustice that keeps going on and on and on and on. The first part of that spiral is called institutionalized injustice. Now where we pick up the story with Masada is during the time of Jesus, you know, we, we talked about Capernaum, we, we talked about the, the, uh, the place where Jesus lived up there on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. There's that natural amphitheater where he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. What's interesting about that Sermon on the Mount is that there were different groups of people that were living in the north, uh, the Galilean region. And most of them were farmers, they were agrarian, some of them were businessmen like, they were, like we've talked about in Capernaum, sort of a cosmopolitan place, the Via Mars runs right beside, uh, right beside it as it goes down towards Egypt. You have, you, you have all these different kinds of people that are coming together to listen to Jesus speak. Now what's interesting is that in this sermon, Jesus starts talking a lot about loving your enemies and people that persecute you. Blessed are those that persecute you. You know, blessed are you when you turn the other cheek. If somebody wants you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Uh, if you love only those that can love you back, what are you doing more than tax collectors and, and publicans? I mean, even the pagans get that, right? But when you want to love someone, you have to love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. There is so much that he talks about that deals with enemies. Now... What does that say about the group of people in the north that he's speaking to? That's an issue that they have. 
Now, if you are standing on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee and you're looking south to the west or to your right, it's going to be the Arbel Cliffs and the Wadi of the Duffs, which was this traffic way to Capernaum from the western, or, or excuse me, the, the Mediterranean side of the country. In that area were brigands and, and robber thieves. If you go to the east and you look to your left, you will see the same thing. There were groups of, of, of zealots, or excuse me, of brigands that Horsley believes that at some point are tired of, of living a life of violence in terms of eking out their, 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 their living. Most of these guys have lost their land because of the taxation to, the, to Judaism, which they didn't mind all that much, but what they really hated was the great taxation to the Romans. In the north, you have people losing their land. You have day laborers that are starting to show up on the scene at this period of time, but you also have these thieves, these, these robbers. Horsley's theory is that these fellows actually become the zealots that through space and time, they get tired of just being sort of political rally kind of guys and let's get rid of Rome, get rid of Rome, get rid of Rome, and they decide that it's, it's time to do something for real. And so when this institutionalized injustice takes place, these zealots are going, man, things are really bad, we gotta do something about it. So they protest and they resist, second level. They say, this is not fair, we can't afford this, look what's happening to the land, you're taking it all away from us. You know, we have, we have people that have had land for generations in their family, it's all going to pieces now. And so what happens is Rome says, we don't care, you're a conquered people, we're going to tax you because you're part of the Roman Empire, you're going to enjoy the Roman peace, the Roman, the Roman uh, way of life. It, it's a safer world, Rome would argue, the Jews would say it's not. But they are going to repress back and say, no, that's not going to happen. Somewhere down the line, you have the critical mass in the hearts of people. Jesus is speaking to that in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, you got to love, you got to love, you got to love, you got to watch your heart, you got to love. Blessed are the people that are persecuted and know how to handle it. You got to love your enemies, turn the other cheek. You, you, you know, this is the way people in the kingdom of God live and, and the way the disciples live. And yet, the zealots don't listen and it leads to a revolt. Next slide, please. The revolt uh, begins in 66 AD, about 30 some odd years after the death of Jesus, starts in the north. Uh, it works its way down to Jerusalem in AD 70. As you know, the story of Jerusalem completely wiped out, burned to the ground. Uh, every tree in a 12 mile radius of Jerusalem is cut down and used to burn that city down. Uh, about 68, two years before the fall of, of Jerusalem, the zealots make their way even further south to Masada. There were some political issues with the zealots and the people in, in, in Jerusalem. They were not welcome there. there the the Sicarii, the, the, the sort of the, the, the hombres of the zealots and, and, and the murders of the zealots, you know, they all decide we're gonna go even further south and get, get away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is burned down. They know that the zealots are there because the zealots in getting Masada had to massacre a Roman garrison to get there. They burn, uh, burn Jerusalem to the ground, and now they're going to Masada. Flavia Silva takes the 10th Legion, the uh, Fretanesis, I think is, was their nickname, takes that 10th that Legion down to Masada. There are about 15,000 people that are moved down to the south. About eight to 9,000 of those are soldiers. The rest are prisoners of war. Uh, here is one of the camps. Again, you'll see the wall that was built around Masada. The reason they built that wall around Masada was because it was, it was kind of a scare tactic. It was basically saying, we're here to stay and nobody's getting out. 
So they build, they build the wall. Here's one of the camps. Next slide, please. Here's a, another camp that's sort of on the northwest side. This is the main Roman camp to the northwest. Next slide. And here's a picture of one of these camps close up. As you can see, uh, there, were, there were places for, for, for tents and, and, and uh, Randy uh, Thompson can talk to us uh, with, with greater depth of knowledge about how you know the Roman legions and Roman soldiers lived out in the field, but there were there were armories and places where food and you know even even uh, uh, not just armories but uh, but jails and things like that that were inside of these walls. Next slide, please. And in April, I take that back. It was uh, it was in seventy two. The Romans arrived. There are 967 people that have made it, women and children, men, up in Masada. The 15,000 Romans arrive, and what they begin to do is to figure out a way that they're going to be able to get into Masada and put down this, this zealot movement once and for all. And so what they do is they build a ramp that goes all the way to the top of those casement walls. That, there's about 70% of that mound that still exists. Next slide. This is what it looks like from the top. You can see just how steep and how big this thing is. These are people right here. Next slide. And you can just see how long it is. And, and basically what happened is, uh, you know, there were no attacks by the zealots that have been recorded by Josephus. Uh, basically what we have are the Romans kind of camping out, laying siege to Masada. They build this ramp. It takes them about nine months to do so. As they're going up, you know, obviously the Jews are going to try to defend themselves, but there are these war machines that they would use to, to, to kind of protect the people. These are why the slaves have been brought down or the prisoners of war have been brought down. We're going to use the Jews to build this because the Jews are going to be a little bit less... You know, less uh, ready to kill their own people rather than using the Romans. But finally what happens is in April, I think it's the, the evening of April 16th in the year 73, the, uh, the Romans finally get up to the very top and with their battering ram, they're able to breach the wall. Now at that point, the sun's starting to go down and they, they stop and everybody calls it quits for the night. Next slide. Next slide. And this is, this is where the story of Masada takes a, a horrible turn. There are 967 people on top of Masada. The Romans were coming through the next day. The only reason they have not gone through is because it's getting dark and their visibility at that time would be very, very limited. And they don't know what kind of traps have been set by the zealots right inside of that wall. So they call it a night and they're going to attack the next day. A fellow by the name of Eleazar ben Yair is the leader of the Zealots. He is the supreme leader of those 967 people up there at the top of Masada. Um, but the way that we know, or the how we know these words have been recorded uh, somewhat accurately is that there were two women and five children that survived what happened at Masada, and they are the ones that related the story to Josephus, who wrote it down and gave it to us. But basically, Eleazar ben Yair knows that Rome's going to come and Rome's not going to be denied and there's no way they're going to be able to hold them off forever. And he also knows that you know, there, there is a miserable life ahead of them if they are captured by Rome. And so he gathers all of the heads of families together in the evening and he says, since we long ago resolved never to be servants to the Romans nor to any other than to God himself, who alone is the true and just Lord of mankind, the time has now come that obliges us to make that resolution true in practice. 
to make that resolution true in practice. We were the very first that revolted, and we are the last to fight against them, and I cannot but esteem it as a favor that God has granted us that it is still in our power to die bravely and in a state of freedom. Next slide. And so what the archaeologists found after reading the accounts of Josephus and being acquainted with what Josephus tells in terms of what happened that night, there are these lots that have been found, and one of them has the name of Eleazar ben Yair on it. I think it's the one, one of those in the center. And what he convinced the people to do is that we are not going to live as slaves to Rome. It would be better for us to die. So he convinced the heads of the households of all of the families that were up there, the zealots, to go home and to put their children and their wives to the sword. The head of each household would go and murder his family. These lots were uh, lots that had the names of all of these heads of households. Out of the heads of household, ten lots were chosen. Those ten would kill then the heads of the households. Out of those ten lots, one would be chosen, and that one would kill the other nine. And then he would fall on his own sword. And um, incredibly, and, as, you know, as you can imagine, it's an incredibly sad, sad, sad story. And so when the Romans come through the next day, uh, it, you know, the sun is up, and they come through that breach in the wall, uh, what they find is every human being, minus the two women and the five children that I believe were found trying to escape coming down the, the snake path, outside of those seven, every other person is dead. Things are on fire, except the food. And the message of the zealots was that we did not kill ourselves, we did not defeat, we were not defeated because your army came in, we were not defeated because we ran out of food and we became desperate. We did this on our own. Next slide. The, the, the story of, of Masada is, is to, to me, it, it's, it's incredibly sad. Um, you, can, you, can, you can only imagine you know, the horror of that night and, you know, the, the Roman soldiers at the bottom of that, you know, that, that plateau hearing and wondering what in the world is going on up there on top, only to find out the next day that everyone has, has, is dead. In fact, the Romans called it the citadel of death. And when they walked out and they saw that, they were absolutely stunned. Now, to this day, um, Masada is, is a... Is a place of pride for the Jewish nation. It's it's a place where you know we you know we we were not going to be enslaved. Masada will never fall again. Is kind of the motto. To me, though, Masada becomes a metaphor for history. It becomes a metaphor for history. You you have uh, you have the place where the Messiah Jesus was born, God incarnated into a man. A message of, of, of the gospel that it culminates in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. But it is in this place where you find this kind of violence and you find this kind of thinking and you find fallenness, the fallenness of human beings taken to the apex. Where you have a, a, a power in the world that says... 
We are going to spend as much money, expend as much life, expend as much blood, as, as, much, as much as it takes. We're going to make sure that we get to the top of that mountain. And not only that, we're going to expend the money to stay in one of the most uh, deserted, desolate areas in that part of the world. We're, whatever funds we need, whatever supplies we need, we're going to expend that to make sure that that mountain is taken. And then you've got people on top that are saying, you, you, you know, our, our decisions, our, our life, what we consider to be important has created wars, created battles. It has is, it is created violence and it is, now it has created death. Even to the point where husbands are taking the lives of their, of their own children and their own wives. Now you can make decisions about those kinds of things personally. But Masada is a place of violence and a metaphor of what's worse about human beings. And, and one of the passages that I think is so powerful when we think about Messiah and we think about what it is that God is doing to invade that kind of world and that kind of, 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 of real metaphor, then we are just staggered. We are just staggered at the, at the power that God has invested to make things different. In Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, Paul is writing to Titus who's on the island of Crete. He says, at one time we two were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So that's, that's the scene that, that Paul sort of describes of mankind. Just eaten up with sin. The fallenness run amongst inside of us. That leads to not just uh, you know, destruction of self, but destruction of other people hated and being hated. But verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. That's God's answer to Messiah. Is Jesus. That when the world gets the gears going, it just becomes a really violent place. And it becomes a place of hate and of malice and of envy and every other kind of destructive human tendency because of our fallenness, but God invades that with Christ Jesus. And not only invades us with the message of the gospel, but through faith in Christ, having our sins washed through baptism, He invades us even further with His Holy Spirit, who changes us into the kind of people that embody what it was that Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Where in a world like this, we know we're blessed even though we're persecuted. And we can love our enemies. And we can pray for those. Pray for those that, that, that do us wrong. And, and we, can, we can go the extra mile with people. Because of all of the extra miles of infinity that Christ came for us. And if somebody would take something from us, we will give him something else because of love. Love is the compelling thing. 
David's going to lead us in a song right now. If there are ways that we can minister to you tonight through prayer or whatever it might be, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing.